Section 34 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Chapter 10. Hungary and the Slavonic Kingdoms by Emil Reich. Part 2. Passing now to events in Bohemia, we find them full of similar perturbations. Here, since 1476, the Vladiks were involved in interminable struggles with the towns. The common people, especially the German settlers, had suffered exceedingly at the hands of the Hussites, who, by impoverishing or massacring the industrial population of their own country, paved the way for an uncontrolled oligarchy. Of these class wars, the cruel, not to say inhuman, campaign waged by the Vladik Kobidlansky of Koblidno against the city of Prague from 1507 onwards is perhaps the most remarkable. It was not until October the 24th, 1517, that the higher gentry and the towns arrived at an arrangement in the so-called Treaty of St. Venceslas. The leading politicians and generals of those internecine troubles were John Paschek of Rat, William of Pernstein, Zdenko Liu of Brodsmittal, and Peter of Rosenberg. After 1520, the old religious dissensions, now intensified by the introduction of Luther's ideas, were resuscitated. The kings, Vladislav and Louis, were quite unable, and it is doubtful whether they were willing, to stem the tide of internal strife. At any rate, they appear to have counted for nothing, and Bohemia, as well as Moravia, was practically handed over to a very limited number of aristocrats, uncontrolled either by the small gentry, or as was the case in contemporary Hungary, or by the towns or peasants. Even without a battle of Mohash, Bohemia had reached the stage when any bold and able foreign prince might very well hope to possess himself of a country important alike by its situation and its resources. The Habsburgs were not slow to see and appreciate their opportunity. The political and moral gloom weighing upon Hungary and Bohemia during the reign of the Yayello kings is undeniable. At the same time, it is easy to exaggerate its consequences. The historians of both countries, and more especially the Magyar authors writing on the reigns of Vladislav II and Louis II, seem at a loss for sufficient terms of reproach and recrimination with which to assail the Hungarians of this period, and they agree in tracing its catastrophe entirely to the moral and unpatriotic shortcomings of the Zapoles and their contemporaries. Yet these authorities abound in statements implying high-spirited actions of good and great men, and serious and well-meant efforts for the preservation of the country. It is precisely in dark periods such as this that an advance in statesmanship and earnest patriotism is apt to make itself manifest. Any age of Hungarian history might have been proud of a patriot, jurist and statesman such as Stephen Berbozzi, the author of the first authoritative, if not strictly official, codification of Magyar law, written and unwritten, the Decretum Tripartitum Juris, 
consuetudinari incliti regni hungariae harmus gonif utterance is nobler and truer than the speeches delivered by him at the diets never fell from the lips of a sincere and wise patriot nor was Bornemisza a commonplace or mediocre politician, while Paul Tamori, Archbishop of Kalosha, both as an ecclesiastic and as a commander, to whom the defence of the south of the country was entrusted, deserved highly of his country. The existence of an ample stock of public and private virtues, even in those dark times, becomes, however, more evident still when we study the collective actions of the Diets, after making all due allowance for their ultimate barrenness, one cannot but acknowledge that the public of that time, that is to say, the bulk of the magnates and common gentry, were at least very anxious to bring about in the government of the country a tolerable equilibrium between the powers possessed by the legislative, executive and judiciary authorities respectively. As to the legislative, they carried two great principles, which in any other age would have been considered a distinct gain for any liberal constitution. One was the law that taxes can be levied by decree of the Diet alone. The other was the equally important law contained in the decrees of 1495, 1498 and especially 1507, by virtue of which the common gentry, not knights, there being no such order in Hungary, were always to have an equal share with the magnates in the government of the nation, particularly in the Privy Council. Other important laws, salutary in themselves, though stillborn, were passed in great number, and immediately before the disastrous campaign of Mohash, the gentry of their own accord temporarily abandoned their exemption from taxation. Highly commendable from the same point of view are the motives discoverable in numerous measures of the time, endeavouring to regulate the working of the county organisation, and the very high reputation of Verboggi, who was rewarded by a national gift for his codification, tends to show the genuine interest taken by the commonality in the important work of legal reform. The Renaissance, it must be admitted, left but a faint impression on Hungary. The magnificence with which Matthias had patronised Italian scholars and artists and established his famous collection of books, the Corvina, was only feebly imitated by a few noblemen and churchmen. As late as 1491, we find that the Judex Curae, Lord Chief Justice of Hungary, Stephen Batori, was so illiterate as to be unable to sign his name at the treaty negotiations between Maximilian and Vladislav II at Pozny, Presburg. In the field of architecture there was some progress. Thus the largest and most beautiful cathedral in the Gothic style in Hungary, that of Kassa, was finished under the Jagello kings, and Bakots embellished the great cathedral of Estagom with much exquisite work. Nor were the seats of the nobles neglected, and the pleasant manor style of 15th century Italy may still be admired in the northern counties of Zemplen and Abai, whither the Turk seldom extended his ravaging expeditions. But if, as will be noted below in connection with other equally deplorable facts, the Renaissance proper can scarcely be regarded as having attained to any national importance in Hungary, 
the Reformation soon penetrated into the various regions and social strata of the country. Already in 1518, traces appear of the influence of the teachings of Luther and Melanchthon in Basfa, Eperge, Loch, and other towns of northern Hungary. Even among the magnates we find several adherents or patrons of the new creed, such as Peter Pereni, Tadeus Nadasi, Valentine Torok. The bulk of the population, however, remained faithful to the old religion, and in 1523, 1524, and 1525, very stringent laws were passed against the Lutherani. In Bohemia, the Hussite movement and the aspirations of the Ultraquists, which had not been appeased before the Diet of Kuttenberg in 1485, paved the way for the Reformation. Gallus Cahera, a butcher's son, who became vicar of the great Tain Church at Prague, and John Lasser of Libersheim were the chief leaders of a religious revival in the sense of Lutheranism. There can thus be little doubt that, with all the undeniable drawbacks of oligarchic or aristocratic misgovernment, both Hungary and Bohemia still possessed numerous elements of prosperity, and that the relatively sudden downfall of both kingdoms, while certainly connected with some moral failings in rulers and ruled alike, cannot be attributed to ethical deficiencies. These were certainly not so exceptional as to account for the disappearance of national independence after a single great defeat on the battlefield. As was remarked at the outset of this chapter, the unexpected dissolution of the two kingdoms and their absorption by a power not very much better organised than themselves and suffering from many similar evils, remains one of the great difficulties besetting this earliest period of modern history. To seek to remove such difficulties by moralising on the selfishness or greed of this palatine or that magnate supplies no historic synthesis of the true relation of facts. Whenever a disaster like that of Mohash stands at the end of a long series of events, it is only fair to assume that the country in question must have been terribly misgoverned. The neglect not so much of one or the other of the ordinary virtues indispensable under all circumstances, but rather of one of the directive forces of national life and progress, will, except when a nation is specially protected by nature, as for instance by the geographical configuration of the country, invariably land it in serious predicaments and eventually in political ruin. One of those directive forces is what is commonly called foreign policy. In Europe at any rate, and most certainly since the downfall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453, the action and reaction of its several countries on one another have been so powerful that Giuseppe Ferrari's suggestion of writing history in a binary form ought to have been carried out long since for every one of them, as fortunately it actually has been for some. In the latter half of the 15th century, the whole tenor and nature of statecraft and policy changed from what it had been in the preceding centuries. The Middle Ages knew only of two universals in politics, the Empire proper, that is, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Catholic Church, the Byzantine Empire having little, if anything, to say in questions of Western policy 
since the days of Charlemagne. Of those two empires, that of the Church alone possessed adequate organisation and means for the purpose of efficient government. The Holy Roman Empire was a fiction, or at best an ideal, lacking all the realities of power. In the face of that vague empire, the less ambitious but more practical smaller sovereigns and lords in Germany, France, Spain and Italy, and likewise those of Bohemia, Hungary and Poland, endeavoured during the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries to build up well-knit and well-organised smaller realms. And this some of them succeeded but too well, and by 1475 Europe was again divided into two groups, but groups of a character totally different from the medieval classification. Instead of a loose fiction, such as the Holy Roman Empire and the Church, Europe then displayed a series of relatively large and fairly centralised monarchies, such as England, France, Aragon, Bohemia, Poland and Hungary on the one hand, and small semi-monarchies, or still smaller but highly organised city-states, such as the Duchy of Bavaria, the Electorate of Saxony, the Free Imperial Towns, and the Italian city-states on the other. The old political universals, however, the Empire and the Church, were not yet extinct. The Church, although undermined by deleterious influences, internal as well as external, could still draw on vast resources of policy, treasure and men. The Empire, although antiquated as an institution, still possessed stores of vitality as a diplomatic contrivance and a political allurement. Owing to the universal character of both Emperor and Pope, nothing but an international policy could be expected from either. But all the minor sovereigns, who were constantly striving to enlarge their domain, were likewise inevitably driven into the maze of this species of policy. However, there was a great difference, though hitherto this has remained almost unnoticed, between the realms east and west of the Oder and the Marsh. All the states west of these rivers, especially Austria, Saxony, Bavaria, Burgundy and France, to mention only the most important ones, consisted not of continuous territory, but of larger or smaller enclaves, broken territory straggling irregularly over several latitudes, and sometimes severed by hundreds of miles. Austria, since the acquisitions of Archduke Leopold III in the 14th century, had enclaves on the Rhine, in Swabia, in Württemberg, not to mention those in Switzerland, Tyrol and Friuli. Bavaria's map in the 14th century is as bewildering as Italy's in the 13th, or that of the Thuringian princes in our days. The same remark holds good as to Burgundy, France and even England, with her enclaves in France, Ireland and Scotland. To this singularly disjointed state of the territory, in all the sovereignties west of the Oder and March rivers, with the solitary exception of Bohemia, the realms east of that boundary, such as Poland and Hungary, offer a remarkable and suggestive contrast. Whether Hungary extended, as it did under Louis the Great in the 14th century, from Pomerania to Bulgaria, or as under Matthias, from Saxony to Servia, the Magyar kingdom 
always had an unbroken continuity of territory, such as is in our own times possessed only by the several great states of Europe. The same remark applies to Poland, with a few insignificant allowances, and also to the Kingdom of Bohemia. This, then, is the chief difference between the states of Bohemia, Poland and Hungary, as they are found at the end of the 15th century, and the rest of the western states of Europe. The unbroken continuity of those eastern states might have seemed to imply a greater unity, and thus greater strength. In reality, however, the effect was entirely different. The western sovereigns, from a natural desire to round off their far outlying possessions, and the western peoples from an equally natural desire to render their nationality coextensive with their land, were constantly anxious to improve and strengthen their organisation at home, while at the same time taking a deep, practical and incessant interest in the affairs of their neighbours and rivals. The very fact of the situation of their states, and of the fundamental desires and needs to which it gave rise, thus made the Western monarchs of the 15th century, at the same time better, or at any rate more efficient rulers at home, and trained diplomatists abroad. They soon learned the lesson, so indispensable in all foreign policy, that no dependence can be placed on any alliance unless it is based on substantial and mutual consideration, to use a lawyer's term. To render themselves valuable, that is, eventually dangerous, was their first and most pressing object, and their subjects could not but feel that at a time when a consistent treatment of foreign policy was the supreme need of their country, the monarch and his councillors justly claimed absolute power. The intimate connection, then, which existed in the case of the Western monarchies between the discontinuity of their territories and absolutism on the one hand, and their spirited foreign policy on the other, goes far to explain the political failure of Hungary and Bohemia at the end of the 15th century, in spite of their brilliant beginnings fifty years before. Precisely at the times when the Western states, even England, practically abandoned their faith in parliamentary institutions and fell into more and more complete subjection to an efficient absolutism, the eastern countries were intent upon weakening the central power and drifted into a quite modern system of diets and parliaments. Their territory being continuous and large, neither their kings nor the peoples underwent any pressure from the outside, urging them to undertake the consolidation of their political fabric at home with any degree of superior efficiency, or to devote careful study and effort to the cultivation of foreign policy. Without such pressure from the outside, no nation has ever persisted in the arduous work of reform for any lengthy period. In the times of Matthias, it is true, we notice that foreign policy was made a subject of constant and rigorous attention on the part of the king, who even tried to bring up a trained body of diplomatists, such as Balthazar Bathani, Peter Doshi, Gregory Labratan, Benedictus Turoshi, and others. These were, however, mere beginnings, and very inferior indeed to the systematic work of the foreign representatives of Burgundy or Austria, not to speak of Venice and the Pope. 
Under the Jagellos, even these feeble attempts were abandoned, and Hungary and Bohemia were from 1490 to 1526 quite outside the main current of the international policy of Europe, alien to all the great interests then at issue, neither valued as allies nor dangerous to anyone except to minor countries in their immediate neighbourhood. When, therefore, the Turk in 1526 invaded Hungary with overwhelming forces, no serious attempt whatever was made to save Hungary on the part of any of the powers, and the Turk, instead of meeting a European coalition, like that which he was to encounter at Lepanto in 1571, when he planned the ruin of Venice, was only confronted by a tiny Magyar army, which he easily destroyed. One has only to compare the incessant activity in foreign policy of Maximilian, or Ferdinand I of Austria, with that of Vladislav II and Louis II of Hungaria and Bohemia, in order to see how utterly inferior Magyar political strategy was to that of the House of Habsburg. Maximilian's great wars with Venice, France and Switzerland, his incessant diplomatic campaigns with the Curia of Rome, with the Princes of Germany, with Venice, are all discussed in other parts of this work. It will be sufficient here to limit our attention to Maximilian's Eastern policy. In addition to his repeated action in favour of the Teutonic Knights in what was afterwards known as East Prussia, he made several treaties with the White Tsar, such as those of 1490, 1491, and especially that of August the ninth, 1514, concluded at Gmunden with Tsar Vasily Ivanovich, through an embassy previously sent to Russia, and intended to bring pressure upon Sigismund, King of Poland, who tried to thwart Maximilian's plans in Hungary. With the Jagellos of Hungary, he carried on several wars, all of them being in point of fact, designed on one pretext or another, to renew and improve upon the original treaty, dated July the 19th, 1463, between the Emperor Frederick III and King Matthias, in virtue of which the Habsburgs were eventually entitled to claim the crown of St. Stephen. The Treaty of Posny, November the 7th, 1491, as well as the negotiations of March 1506, leading to the Treaty of July the 19th, 1506, and the Congress of Vienna, July 1515, all terminated at the last named date in an arrangement according to which Vladislav's daughter Anne was to marry Ferdinand, Maximilian's grandson, and Vladislav's son Louis was to become the husband of Maximilian's granddaughter Mary. By these double marriages, the Habsburg claim to the Kingdom of Hungary was brought within measurable distance of consummation. It is impossible here to do more than indicate the immense diplomatic activity of Maximilian in this, the most lasting of his achievements. All the levers of the international policy then in operation were put in motion by him. His policy towards Louis XII of France and that towards the Dukes of Milan, his European League against Venice, the so-called League of Cambrai, all and everything was utilised by him to flatter, threaten, bribe or cajole Hungary into accepting his house as the eventual heir of the Jagellos. In July 1510, his ambassadors, together with those of France and Venice, 
pleaded before the Hungarian Diet at Tata, pretending to be very anxious for the participation of Hungary in the League against Venice. As against this businesslike and powerful policy of the ingenious Habsburg, what do we find in Hungary? Nothing. Hungary had neither standing ambassadors at the various courts, nor any class of trained diplomatists. At Tata, the assembled gentry listened with self-complacency to the eloquent foreign orators, but as usual, the noblemen soon lost patience and dispersed. Venice rightly judged the nullity of Hungary's international position, when, even in the midst of her danger, she refused to make any concessions whatever to the Venetian party amongst the Magyar nobles. The popes, whose still very valuable countenance Hungary might have secured by a more aggressive policy against Venice in Dalmatia or in Friuli, likewise dropped Hungary. Ignorant of what passed beyond the Carpathian mountains, unable to avail themselves of the currents and countercurrents of the international policy, rendering no service to the chief powers of the day, the Hungarians were left in the hour of their greatest danger to their own slender resources as against the most formidable military power of the time. The Habsburgs, both from having worn the imperial dignity for ages, and because their countless enclaves brought them into incessant conflicts with nearly all the powers of Europe, had by long and patient study learned the priceless value of a sound and sustained foreign policy. In that vital point, neither the Bavarian dukes, from the exiguity of their domain, nor the Bohemian or Hungarian kings, from their totally different habits of political thought, could vie with them. Even Matthias could not, in the end, have prevailed against Maximilian, inasmuch as the Hungarians, from the very nature of their unbroken, self-sustaining territory, would neither have understood, nor have readily followed a Habsburg policy carried out by a Magyar king. Mohash, then, was the necessary outcome of the neglect of foreign policy, at a time when it was most needed and this neglect again cannot but be ascribed chiefly to habits of political thought inevitable in a nation which lacked all those geographical and economic incentives to the maturing of a foreign policy that raised the nations ruled by the Valois and Habsburgs above all other nations of the continent. It is infinitely more becoming to lament Mohash as an unavoidable calamity than to use it as a text on which to lecture an unfortunate nation. The fatal failings of Hungarian policy may be traced in Poland also. In the first quarter of the 15th century, the great prince of Lithuania, Witovt, had had indeed far-reaching ideas about the foundation of a vast Czech-Polish empire, which was to dominate the whole east of Europe. However, he failed chiefly because he was antagonistic to the Catholic or National Church of Poland. Casimir IV, 1445-92, father of Vladislav II of Hungary and Bohemia, successfully combated the Teutonic Order and other neighbouring powers. Doubtless, like his contemporary, Matthias Corvinus, he had clear views about the necessity of reorganising his country on the basis adopted by the monarchs of the West. However, both he and his sons and successors after him, John Albert, 1492-1501, to 
and Alexander I, 1501-6, tried in vain to break the power of the magnates by countenancing the minor gentry, Schlachter. In 1496, the peasants were completely disenfranchised against the urban population, mostly Germans, and termed hospites, several very damaging laws were passed, and the royal power was seriously reduced by the magnates. After suffering more particularly from the statute of Niesava, 1454, the golden bull rather than the magna carta of the Polish oligarchs, and from the constitution, Nihil Novi, of 1505, the monarchy became practically helpless in the hands of Sigismund I, 1506-48, brother to his predecessors. It was during this period that both the General Diet, Izba Poleska, Chamber of Deputies, of all the various absolutely autonomous provinces of Poland, and the several provincial diets, acquired the fullness of actual authority in the legislative and administrative branches of government. The king might appoint, but might not remove officials. The nuntii terrae, or representatives at the national diets, were inviolable and omnipotent. Thus in Poland, too, parliamentarianism, in a rather extreme form, arose at the very conjuncture when it had proved inefficient in all the Occidental countries. As in Hungary and Bohemia, so in Poland, its undue development crippled any consistent and sound foreign policy and we accordingly find that although during the whole of the 16th century Poland still appears imposing and still achieves many a remarkable success, yet she can neither stop the growth of hostile Russia in the east nor the insidious rise of Prussia in the west. She can neither amalgamate her population into one nation nor endow it with a less anarchical constitution. With a country three times as large as modern France and territorially unbroken, besides possessing a fair outlet to the sea, the Poles were in possession of many of the factors that contribute to establish a state and to give an assured balance to its position. That pressure from the outside, however, which has probably done more for the good of nations than most of their virtuous and patriotic qualities, was wanting. In proverbial prodigality and pleasure-seeking, the nobility of Poland spent the intervals of war on their neglected estates, leaving the great sea commerce to the German patricians of Danzig, the internal trade to the Jews, what little industry there was to the German burgesses, and the schools to the priests. Although most Polish noblemen of the wealthier classes had received a careful education at the universities of Italy, and many of them were imbued with the spirit of the classics, and fired by the ideals of true patriotism. Yet all these, and many other fine qualities, of this most distinguished of Slavonic nations, were rendered useless and barren by the apathy and indolence of the great body of the nobles. Surely in a nation which could produce a Copernicus and so many great poets, there must have been much natural endowment, even for the highest spheres of thought. In the midst of general indifference, however, the richest soil must lie fallow. The Poles, like the Hungarians, were utterly without any power of self-orientation in matters to the west of their vast country. They neglected European interests, both the Renaissance, the new international movement in the realm of intellect, 
and the new international policy of contemporary monarchs. In return, Europe, indifferent to Poland, as she was to the Magyars, suffered her to sink slowly but surely into inevitable dissolution. End of section 34